0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary, with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend is the 12th Sunday after Pentecost, and our texts are our Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 through 6, the Epistle from Romans chapter 11, verse 33, through chapter 12, verse 8, and the Gospel from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. The Old Testament reading from Isaiah, so again, Isaiah is God's prophet that he has sent to his people of Judah, the southern kingdom, to share his word, which is both judgment but also restoration all the way throughout this book. And we have our text today from 51 verses 1 through 6 really is sandwiched right in the midst of the servant songs. If you're not familiar with the servant songs of Isaiah, there are four different places in his book where he focuses on the servant of Yahweh, this servant who would come, who would even suffer on account of God's people to redeem God's people, to bring about salvation for us. Obviously, when we talk like that as Christians, we very quickly connect it to being Jesus. That Jesus is our Savior. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah has to teach us about. These songs are in chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, chapter 49, verses 1 through 6, chapter 50, verses 4 through 7, and then chapter 52, beginning at verse 13 and going through chapter 53, verse 12. These are some of the most beautiful words that Isaiah has to speak to us as God's people, that he had to proclaim to the people of Judah as they were being attacked and and the judgment of the Lord had begun upon them. But Isaiah prophesies these words of restoration. And so our text today falls again right in the midst of really the, the three there at the end. The first one's a few chapters earlier, but... Chapter 49, 50, 52, 53, and here we have a text from 51, right in the midst of all of that. And in this text in particular, what we see is God calling his people to pay attention, to give ear, to listen, and to return. This is an invitation by the Lord to his people, that they would again be his people, and that they would live forever. So we're going to take the text. It's six verses, and it's not paragraph broken up in in the Bible. So we're going to go ahead and read it straight through. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For Yahweh comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me. And I will set my justice for a light to the peoples my righteousness draws near. And my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. You lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Most likely our connection, and the reason the Isaiah 51 is our text for the weekend, is that first verse, that we would look to the rock from which we were hewn. In the gospel text from Matthew, we learn about Jesus being the Christ and then Jesus responds to Peter's confession there and we'll get to that Jesus responds and calls says you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and that rock we'll talk about later is the confession of Christ faith in Christ and so we have this idea of the rock that is connecting us there are lots of Old Testament passages that could have been chosen but this is the one that's been paired with the gospel My understanding is that's the way that the the lectionary committee that actually puts together the pericope system, the different readings, that's the way that they typically do it. They start with a gospel text. So you have Matthew as year A, and so you pretty much work through all of Matthew's gospel in year A. Mark is year B. Mark is a little shorter, so a lot of John gets spliced in. And then year C is Luke. Um, And so you work your way through the gospel, and as you're doing that, as you pick a pericope for the New Testament gospel reading, then they pick an Old Testament reading that has a connection to that gospel text, Uh, something that you can really draw out and will aid a pastor in his preaching and the hearer in their understanding, that connection that just will run through. The epistle text... I. believe the intention of the committee was to help you see the epistles as wholes, just like they're doing with the gospel and reading you through a gospel. So they're trying to read you through the various epistles as well. So, you know, back in the season of Easter this year, we read through First Peter. Now we're in the middle of reading through most of the book of Romans. Before, in a few weeks, we'll move into the book of Philippians. So the, the epistle text thematically doesn't always have such a great connection to the gospel in the Old Testament reading. It is still scripture, and we can make them connect because it's all God's word, and it does that. But your, your biggest, your easiest connections are the Old Testament to the gospel, because I believe that is how the committee has picked their text. So that's why I like to look for it and kind of share with you how the texts go together each week. And that's our our connection point this week. This rock idea—the rock from which we were hewn—and that is actually the Lord, as we talk about Isaiah's passage here. God is the rock from which we were hewn. If you want to get to the idea of of a, of a source or, or a creator, you could get quite literal with it and talk about the earth that we were made of, the dust, and that's an okay conversation too. But ultimately, who is the source? Who is the one who has made us? God is calling us again back to himself. He's not calling us to the earth. He's calling us to himself. We're going to learn at the end of the section that the earth is just passing away. So God's call is to him. So listen to me at the beginning. um, In verse 1, that is Isaiah speaking on God's behalf. God is working through his prophet to proclaim this message. Those who pursue righteousness and seek Yahweh, that should be all people. It's not, but that should be all of us. We should all want to know the one who created us. We should all want to know the one who is redeeming us. Unfortunately, in our sinful natures, we don't all desire that. In fact, if it was just us, we'd, we'd run from it. So we rely on the potter. On, on the one who has made us out of clay. Verse 2, God calls us to look back to our beginning. He calls his Judaite people, his, his people of Judah, to look back to the very beginning of their holy people, to Abraham and to Sarah, the old couple that gave birth to Isaac. Abraham was just one man when God called him to leave Ur and to go wherever God would send him to go. But God promised him. God made him the, the promise indeed that he would bless him and multiply him. There's another connection between our Old Testament and our Gospel reading. We'll see Peter blessed by Jesus um, for his faith, and now that's spoken of here Abraham as well. The promise is Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. That's one of the spots that you can read it, but it's one of the most clear, where God tells Abraham that he's going to make his offspring, he's going to make his descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore. I don't know about you, but I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to count the grains of sand on a seashore. I mean, I don't know, I'm going to look it up real quick. Grains of sand in a cup of sand. Let's see if Google has an answer. This is from one of those question and answer kinds of websites. A cup is typically thought of as 250 milliliters, so that cup would have at least 2 million grains. On that basis, a cubic meter of sand would have no less than 8. Billion particles of sand. I right, was a cup, two two million grains of sand in a cup. You think of how small that is. No wonder you can't count it. The smallest beach I know of is not far from where my my in laws, my wife's parents, live up in Wisconsin, and I don't know that beach is maybe twenty yards at most wide. Um, And then the depth of it, the distance from shore to sea, is maybe five yards. It's a really tiny beach. But even at that, how many billions, maybe trillions, more than that? of, of How many grains of sand are on that tiny beach? Talk about a promise that God has made to his servant, that he has made to his child, Abraham. Now, he fulfills it. I mean, by the time they're leaving Egypt, which is 700 years later, roughly, 2166 is when Abraham was born, so 1446 is the year for the Exodus, so that's 600 Trying to do the math in my head without visualizing it, 2166 to 1446, that's 720 years, I'm looking at that right, but that's, that's from Abraham's birth, so it's less than that, uh, and in that time, they go from being one to at least a couple million by the time that they've left Egypt and the plagues, and God is going to continue to bless his people, and he did for a while, until that judgment period came, and then we learned of a remnant, and we don't have that remnant language in this text. This text is is comfort. I mean, that's the next verse. This is good stuff. What does the comfort of God look like? So you have here really would get to the judgment idea. They They are being comforted by the Lord because they have seen death. They have seen the wages of sin and they have learned that the wages of their sin is death. And they've seen the destruction of everything that they knew and everything that they loved. And they were mourning and they were grieving. And God cared for them. He came alongside of them. He walked with them. He comforted them. To use a picture that we get of paradise he wipes away every tear from their eyes and we can go to paradise because that's what this verse is i mean it's good to talk about it because that's what god does here this is not a small matter of restoration god is going to comfort all of her waste places and make her wilderness like eden Eden is paradise, as we we think of that, that original design of God, the original act of his creation. And we have that very first garden, very first and perfect place. Eden is mentioned just 19 times in Scripture. All of them in the Old Testament, interestingly enough. The Hebrew word. I'm trying to look at it. There's not a whole lot of meaning behind it that I'm seeing here.
1: Honestly, I named
0: one of my children this. And and our study of the word when we did that was basically the idea of paradise. And we connected it more so to what the Garden of Eden was. That God first created this perfect place where there was no death. There was no sadness or sorrow or sin or pain or struggle. Everything was beautiful. Everything was perfect. The world today, post-fall, is nothing like that. And yet, God is not promising here, after the judgment, after the exile into Babylon, he's not promising in this text that he's going to restore them back to Jerusalem. We've read that elsewhere in the book, yes, but this is bigger. He is going to make them into the Garden of Yahweh. There is a promise of paradise here, and it's not the only place in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 32, verse 15, chapter 35, verses 1 and 2, chapter 61, verses 3 through 4, and chapter 65, verses 21 and 22 all point us to this new Jerusalem that we normally think of from Revelation chapter 21. Um, Roughly verses 1 through 5, I think it would be there. And these will be the marks of us at the end of verse 3. Joy and gladness, thanksgiving and, and singing. Our lives are to look like that now. But in our sinfulness and our brokenness, it's hard. It is hard to be glad when we're hurting. It is hard to give thanks at all times, although we've been called to it. Give thanks always, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, are the two verses that come before it. Verse 4. So just as it was in verse 1, the calling to attention, here it is again. Uh, So listen, give attention, give ear. A couple of those, obviously, giving the connection to hearing. And hearing is one that has been used already by Isaiah, but certainly picked up on by Jesus. This idea of hearing, which means understanding, which means having faith. So we are called to faith. To trust in the Lord. And here he also calls us my people. Not just any people. We are called my people. God claims us as his own. He has done that not just in the Old Testament for his people. He's done that for us today through the waters of baptism as well. We are a holy nation according to the Apostle Peter. Now we get this parallel all the way through the rest of four and five. All these things go together. So, a law, justice, light, righteousness, salvation, and my arms. These are all going together to show us what God is doing. And really, they're describing, these words describe the actions that we see from the servant in those first two servant songs. So, again, chapter 42 and chapter 49. uh, Sorry, 42, 1 through 4 and 49, verse 6 in particular, but it's 1 through 6. We see these kinds of things from him. Now, the Hebrew word in verse 4 that we translated as law in the English text probably would be better translated as Torah, which is their word for instruction. The law is God's instruction of his people. So, as we talked about giving attention and giving ear and hearing, well, why are we hearing? We're hearing what God has to say to us. We're hearing his instruction for us. As he reveals... His salvation to us. And that's what the rest of these are, right? God's justice. When we talk about what is God's justice, is it not the cross of Jesus Christ? As the just punishment of our sins that we deserved were placed upon his own son on the cross? Or... The the light to all peoples, is that not Jesus? Very specifically identified as such in the New Testament several times. He is the light of the world. Isaiah uses that language elsewhere as well, referring to the Savior as as a light to the Gentiles even. Verse 5, righteousness, that Jesus is the righteousness of God. And then he takes that righteousness, that perfection, and he gives it to us. That it draws near is the theme of Jesus' preaching as he comes in Matthew's gospel. And he begins to speak, he says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus has brought about the reign of God over his creation. Which then means, in verse 5 again, my salvation has gone out. God has sent it. God has sent salvation into the world and he has done it by sending his own son Jesus Christ. God comes to us. We don't go to God. We couldn't find him if we tried. God comes to us. It's the beautiful theme of Emmanuel, God with us that we celebrate every single year at Christmas time. And we can celebrate it every day all to the time as well. And then my arms will judge the people's. And you got a couple of pictures here with with arms. So first with arms is the idea that an arm stretched out has been a theme of judgment in this book already. But as we connected justice and judgment just a bit ago to the cross of Christ, now connect the arms to the cross of Christ. Talk about an interesting picture. That God's arms would judge the people's. And you picture Jesus' arms lifted up stretched out and nailed to the cross and that his arms have judged you they have judged you innocent a beautiful picture of the salvation that we have in christ now we have the coastlands waiting for god Uh, connects again to god coming to us and not us to him but previously These very coastlands, back in chapter 23, in the Tyre Judgment that we had read about, so Tyre, the city, T-Y-R-E, a port city. In that time, that massive port city had been judged. It had been broken down. It had been taken away from its wealth and its prosperity. And essentially, we read in that chapter that all the, the merchant ships had stopped their travels and that the cities of the coastland were being filled with idle workers from Sidon who had nowhere to go. They had no goods to trade. But here, those coastlands are being restored. They have been waiting, and God has come. Verse 6, the point of verse 6 is to show you, really it's to say this, look up, look down, whatever you just saw, it's going away. Anything and everything is is fading. This world, this creation is dying. But, but God's salvation will last forever. And so again, we go back to verse three in the paradise that God is making for us, that he is restoring creation. And so there's a lot of Argument I think scholarly about what the restoration of creation means Is it going to be God? Essentially terraforming this earth if you're not familiar. That's a sci-fi Kind of thing science fiction likes to talk about terraforming and that's where you take a planet and you literally end up Reshaping the planet you resurface the planet just like you would resurface your driveway uh, When it needs to be repaved because it's all broken up You you somehow are reforming the planet so that it can be good again, so that it can be sustainable to life. Is God going to basically terraform this earth, or is he going to let this earth pass away and in its place give us a new one? You hear Christians talk about it in both ways, and I think you could even probably pick out both of those ways from scripture. So there's not there's not a terrible amount of benefit for us to try and pin that down one way or the other. It might better chalk up to what we're going to read in the first verse of our Romans epistle, how unsearchable his judgments and inscrutable his ways, you know, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God, we just don't know. And that's okay. But it's a fun thing to think about nonetheless, what paradise will be like when we get to be there with God. Now a little bit more into the verse six there. Lift up your eyes to the heavens is a very much a, a language of the songs in scripture. So Psalm 121 verse 1 and Psalm 123 verse 1, both start out very similarly to that. And Psalm 123, it's that phrase. Psalm 121, instead of the heavens, it was the hills. But then it said, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. So you could connect this to prayer. And Jesus did this to pray. He looked up to pray. We look down to pray, oftentimes. You think of bowing your head, closing your eyes. uh, So the look to the earth beneath. It's neat to think of those words in that way. But again, that's not the point God was making with the text. Instead, it's that the earth is going to wear out like a garment and the heavens will vanish. What you see will be gone. And anyone who is dwelling in them will be gone. They will die. They will perish god's judgment will come but again that salvation of the lord lasts forever that new paradise that he is preparing for us even now according to the promise of christ that new paradise is ever everlasting as we turn to our epistle text it's romans chapter 11 verses 33 through chapter 12 verse 8. And we're going to break this one up into three three parts. We'll start with the, the verses that end chapter 11 first. Now, we've already mentioned this, this first verse. but Let's go ahead and read it. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That amen word there is a Greek word for truly or indeed. So Paul is essentially echoing what he has just spoken. He's, you know, we see that as the end of a chapter, but he continues to speak after that, that word is spoken too. So, All right, we're going to look at the depth of things. Basically, verse 33 is describing the idea that we cannot truly fathom all the things of God. And that's very true. It's simply beyond our understanding. But let's talk about some of this anyway. So the depth of the riches, wisdom, and knowledge. So we have three things in that first sentence. What do we know about the riches of God? For starters, we know God owns all things. You don't own anything. I know we talk that way. We talk about the bank owning my house. Or we talk about how I own uh, the clothing that I'm wearing or whatever it may be. We don't own any of it. The Lord owns this planet and everything on it. The Lord owns the universe. He made it all. It is his. You are a caretaker. God has entrusted to you all the things that are in your possession. The money sitting in your bank account, whether it's a dollar or a million dollars, doesn't matter. It's God's money. It's God's tool. It's God's resource for caring for his creation. And he has entrusted that to you, that you would make use of it to care for his creation, to care for your neighbor. You can do that well. And you can do that poorly. The parable of the talents Jesus tells in the New Testament picks up on that kind of a theme. God owns all things. Now, also these riches of God, we could talk about as his gifts to us. His mercy, his grace, his love, his forgiveness. All these things that he so richly and wondrously gives to us. The second word, wisdom, Talks about why does God do what God does? And that's beyond us. God had that conversation with Job as Job was trying to figure out the ways of the Lord. We just don't know. I cannot answer the question of why God chose to create the world in the first place. He didn't tell us. I cannot answer the question of why God sent Jesus into creation somewhere between 6 and 2 BC. Why then? Why not sooner? Why not later? Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? I just, I don't know. God hasn't told us. I can't understand these things in particular. The wisdom of God is beyond our understanding. This is good. This is a good thing. Paul picks up on this topic in the beginning of his letter to the church in Corinth as he addresses the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God even. He says the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And the foolishness of God, according to Paul, is the cross of Christ. Now as we look at the third word, the knowledge of God. We were talking about some some of this with the, the Old Testament reading, the grains of sand on the seashore. God knows the number of hairs on your head. You don't. I mean, you could shave your head today, I guess, and try and count them, but good luck with that. Most of us wouldn't be able to get to 100, and we'd have to count over again. I mean, I guess you could go at it for a while do bags of a hundred or maybe you'd have to do smaller bags of 20 hairs. As if you haven't lost some on the ground. God knows even that kind of an intimate little detail about you. And he knows that kind of intimate detail about everything in his creation, including beyond this earth. We have no idea how many rocks are out there in space. How many planets span the universe, how many stars there are, but God does. He made them all. He cares for them all, just like he cares for you. All of this is beyond our understanding. We simply cannot know, and because we cannot know, we cannot render a just judgment. If you don't know, you can't judge. we keep in mind contextually this is Paul's response to God grafting in the gentiles bringing them into the, the family of God and, and cutting off Israel cutting off the Jewish people God's ways are beyond Paul Paul can't understand it but he will rejoice nonetheless So we look at verse 34 and 35 it's a rhetorical question and the obvious answer is well no one and as we've even as we talked about the depths and riches of god in, in verse 33 as we look at 35 who can give god a gift that god would have to repay him which one of you listening today has anything that you personally own that you can give to god that god himself doesn't already own again your money in your bank account It's already God's. So when you tithe, when you give money to God's house, to the care of God's church, which is used to care for your community as well, you're just giving back something God has already entrusted to you anyway. You're giving up something that God already has, something that God already says is his, and he's already promised he was going to care for you. Really, the the whole point of tithing is that you would trust that he will care for you. Can you trust if you give up this little bit what you have that god will care for you anyway that you'll be okay verse 36 three great little prepositional phrases from him are all things so we talked about in the old testament reading that god was the source that we all come from him now as we look to the new testament reading we get that again Um, we all come from god he is our Source, He is our Creator. That's a little bit more the second phrase through Him. So, from Him, we come from God. We were like God, we bore His image when He first created us. We lost that in the fall, being restored and redeemed in Christ. Now, through Him are all things. So, through Him, we can talk about being created. We were created through God, by God but also saved. And that's going to connect us then to the third phrase that we are to him, to him are all things, all things exist in creation to give God glory. All things bring glory to the Lord, whether it's in the good sense or in the bad sense. I mean, even the the sins that bring about judgment upon mankind, the wicked sinner who is judged and condemned because of his sin brings glory to the Lord as being a just God. I know that's hard for us to hear, but think about it for a moment. If a man... Okay, I'm going to use myself in this example. If I were to walk out of my office this afternoon to go home to spend the afternoon with my family, have dinner with them and whatnot, and as I'm walking out the door, somebody's walking through the church parking lot and they kill me. And they don't stop there. The man that kills me Continues on, and he goes on a rampage, and he kills a hundred more people in town before the police catch him. As he comes before the judge, because they actually caught him, he's there, he, he has to face his day in court. As he comes before the judge, what should the judge say? If the judge let him go, how would you react? How would you respond? Would you say good things about the judge? Not likely. You would most likely ridicule the judge and say that there was no justice that was just had in that that whole matter. The judge's job is to do justice, is to... Either put that man away so that he cannot harm anyone else or because the government has the power of the sword he can give the man the sentence of death those things would be justice in response to the crime that has occurred so it's hard for us to think that even the wickedness in the world can bring glory to God. But it does because in those wicked things, God, God enacts faithful justice. God's judgment in Noah and the account of Noah back in Genesis chapter six through nine, for example, the flood of the world, it brought glory to the Lord. Noah and his family looked to the Lord. They trusted in God. They thanked God for salvation and they thank god for sparing them It's just an example of this so for from him where he is our source of life through him we are created and to him we are saved and give glory what a string of prepositions that is uh, for us now the second paragraph start of verse 12 chapter 12 verses one and two i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So on account of this, you therefore, by the mercy of God, so what God has done for you is the reason Paul is about to say what he says And he calls us brothers, not by birth. Remember, his birth brothers, uh, the the Jewish people, have just been cut off. But he refers to them as brothers anyway. He is calling them family because that is what we are in Christ. That's coming up in the next paragraph. But he encourages them here not to live for themselves, but to live for God as Jesus did for us. Jesus did not come in this world to live for himself. He came into this world to live for you. And so as a child of God, as a co-heir of creation with Christ, we do what Christ did. And so instead of living for me, I am called to live for others. This is one of the ways we talk about the sinful nature. Incurvatus in se was the Latin phrase that we are curved inward on ourselves. That we focus on caring for me, myself, and I. Instead of loving the people around us. We are to be a living sacrifice. That's a key thing. It's good to have that word living there. Um, we are not a dead sacrifice. This is not a command for us Christians to to execute ourselves in, in mass quantities. There have been cults who have, have done that but the Christian is not called to that we are to live for the Lord we are to be holy that is set apart we are to live for others we are to live for the Lord we're to do godly work good works that are acceptable before the Lord and this is our spiritual worship um there is a, the intimate connection between the word worship and sacrifice old testament worship of god necessitated sacrifice really worship points you to forgiveness how do you receive forgiveness and that's what worship is about in the old testament you brought animals to sacrifice to the lord or you brought grain or whatever it was and that's how you receive forgiveness in the new testament we come to worship and god having sacrificed himself gives of himself to us again and again and again in the body and blood of jesus So those words sacrifice and worship, again, connected, bound at the hip. Verse 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. This is a major, major idea for us to consider. We struggle with this one. We love the world. But we are called again and again by God's word not to. We are called to not hear, not conform to the world. We are called to be not of the world, but in the world by Jesus and the gospel. We are called to lose our life in order to serve Christ and the gospel. Peer pressure, coveting, these are real things. And yet, we're not to do these things. We're not to love the things that the world loves, but instead we're to be transformed. How? How are we to be transformed? That's answered, actually. The how is the renewal of your mind. Renewal. Renew. Make it new again. Make your mind new again. Take the thing that has been dead in sin and make it new again. And how do we make it new again? We give it to the Lord. We give it back to the one who created it. Renew it. Let God renew your mind. In other words, learn the things of God. That's the mind part. The instruction that we were talking about in Isaiah's lesson for us today. Learn the things of God so that you may discern the things around you. You can't discern what is the will of God. You cannot discern good and evil if you don't know his word, right? Our culture today loves all kinds of evil things and will not call them evil. Woe on those who call good evil and evil good. And it happens around us every day. Recent years... The number of abortions every year has fallen. I we can be thankful for that. At least that's what they tell us statistically. Even the institute like the like Gutmacher, which supports abortion, still estimates that over nine hundred thousand children are killed every year. And this is a good thing, according to the world. They parade in the streets for the right to do this. They mock our faith with it. I've seen demonstrators who pretend to be Mary, saying if only she had had an abortion. The world calls good evil, and it calls evil good. We watch right now as the cities around us burn to the ground, and we're told that it's a good thing. We cannot discern if we do not know his word. We are to entrust ourselves back to the Lord, to the one who made us. Our last paragraph of this particular reading. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. So, this is getting into a little bit more of what it looks like to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So, Paul is going to say by the grace given to him so he's not doing this of his own he is here because god has brought him to this point he is here because god has restored him forgiven him and given mercy to him even though he didn't deserve it and he calls us to be humble just as we talked about before that we would not live for us we would not focus on turning in on ourselves This is the call here as well, that we would be humble, that we would oppose sin, we would oppose pride. And we would, as the rest of the section is going to teach, we would serve the rest of the body. Sober judgment in the verse is not talking about drunkenness. It's talking about clarity of thought. Um, If you're drunk on strong wine, you can't think properly. If you're drunk on your sins, you cannot think properly. And so this is a call that we would be sober of mind, we would be clear of mind that we might be able, as verse two it said, to discern. And then, to do what God gave you to do, the measure of faith, so our faith allows us to receive the gifts of God. In that measure of faith, God has assigned to you. He has given you callings. He has called you to do specific tasks. We call these vocations. It's the Latin word for calling. Verse 4 gives us this great analogy. This has to be one of the top analogies in Scripture. Your body, you know, go ahead and look at yourself. I guess not if you're driving. Focus on the road if you're in the car. If you're not driving, if you're if, it, if you're in a position where it's all right to take a look, hold up your hand in front of your face. How many members are there? You can count your fingers. You can count the individual sections of each finger. You can count the nail, the knuckles. You can count the bones, the muscles, the tissue. You can count your palm your wrist, your arm, you can run your finger across the back of your hand and feel those different bones in your hand. We haven't gotten behind, behind just the hand, and I don't know what count we're at, many members already there, and as you think of of, of the cellular level, there's even more. Um, Paul doesn't go to the cellular cellular level here or elsewhere when he uses the same analogy in Corinthians, for example. But just think of it. Let's just use your head. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) so your head, you have eyes, ears, nose, mouth, all different members, all different functions. Your eyes see, your ears hear, your mouth tastes and speaks, your nose smells. And yet all of those things are beneficial to you and to your body. They're all beneficial to you and to your ability to serve the people around you that you've been given to care for. If you take one of them away, could you still live? Yeah, but you'd lose on some things. If you can't see, if you're blind, it's not like life is suddenly not worth living that God has abandoned you and everything is terrible, but it is a loss. And and that is grieved, certainly. But you still have other members, you have other functions and you can serve. But all the members of the body have their different roles. They all do different things so that the body functions properly. Now, as we think and apply this to the church, which is the move Paul is making, we are the body of Christ. So there's but one Christ, and he has many members. You are a member of the body of Christ. I don't know if you're his finger, or his toe, or his nose, or his left rib, or whatever. We have different functions. And we are to use those functions as as a part of the body as a whole. To do the work of the church. And so Paul gives examples of this. By the grace given to us, just as it was given to him back in verse 3, let us use those things. Prophecy, so speaking the word of the Lord to people. Service, being humble, caring for others. Teaching, sharing the word of God, allowing others to, to really learn about God exhorting so encouraging people building them up giving them things to do encouraging them in their labor contributing so generosity giving and giving and giving and giving and giving leading with zeal so the one who leads we have the the conversation jesus had about the pharisees the the blind leading the blind they just the blind man will lead another blind man into a pit but if you've been called by god to lead and you are to lead your neighbor and you're to lead them well you are to lead them to water in fact let's just go john 4 on that you should lead them to living water lead them to the cross of christ those who do acts of mercy do so cheerfully so serving our neighbor again so a good text today from from romans and another week and i've done it to myself again I've got about 10 minutes to study the gospel reading with you from Matthew chapter 16. It's verses 13 through 20. This is a familiar one. It's a short one, but it's a key one. I mean, it has a a lot of history in the church as well. History of causing conflict, I should probably say it that way. All of scripture has a history in the church. All right, so let's read the text. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Caesarea Philippi is out northeast of the sea of galilee it's not a port city it's not right there i I don't know the exact distance but you'd have to travel a few miles at least to get to to this city jesus is going and into this roman district as part of rome's territory and he uses a question to teach the disciples son of man is a reference to himself the disciples know that they've heard him use that title for himself several times So who are others saying that Jesus is? The disciples share some of the things that they've heard. Some are saying John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, others one of the prophets. Note that all of those are prophets. So in terms of who are the crowds thinking Jesus is, the crowds are responding. Crowds are talking to the disciples and saying that they think Jesus is a prophet. That can be a good thing it can be a bad thing depending on where they're at um, one in particular we know was saying Jesus was John the Baptist was King Herod Herod after killing John and hearing about Jesus starts to believe that maybe Jesus is John reincarnated back from the dead terrified him at least for a moment we don't hear too much about that but it's in there now So, John the Baptist is the great prophet in the New Testament. Elijah is the great prophet of the Old Testament, and then Jeremiah and others. So you have, there were lots of prophets in the Old Testament times. And yes, Jesus is a prophet. He does speak God's word to his people. Interestingly enough, if you ask who Jesus is to other groups today... The next largest group of people in the world after christianity christianity is the last i checked was still first in terms of percentage population and in the creation next largest and it's close is islam if you ask a muslim who jesus is they would tell you he's a prophet so they would agree with some of these crowds they would tell you that we christians misunderstood everything he had to teach but that he was a great prophet that was sent by God from above. They actually do the same thing about Noah and Abraham. I think they have four prophets. I'd have to do some study on that again. So Jesus has asked that question. He's got them on the topic. He's got them thinking about it. And now he turns the question back to them. Now that you've said what the crowds think, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you think that I am? What have they learned in the time that they've been traveling with him as they've gone from village to village, as they've seen all the miracles that he has done, as they've heard him teach in synagogues, as they've heard him rebuke the Pharisees? What have you learned? What have the disciples come to know about this Jesus? And Simon replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is one of the few moments of great faith that we see from the disciples in the gospel accounts. Typically, the gospels portray the disciples as not being all that faithful. But here, that is a bold and faithful statement that Peter just proclaimed, just said his belief that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is Christ. Christos in Greek is the word that means anointed one. You think of anointing in the Old Testament. We first probably go to Saul and then David chronologically. David would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed even though Saul was seeking to kill him. David wouldn't touch Saul. But after Saul died, David took over the throne over the kingdom of Israel. They would anoint prophets, priests, and kings. And... Jesus fulfills all three of those roles for us. He is our prophet, priest, and king. So he is the anointed one. That's what the Hebrew word Messiah means. It's the Greek word Christ, Christos. Paul has, uh, not Paul, Peter has acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that God was going to send to care for his people. That's a huge moment right there. Son of the living God living god indicates that that active faith in peter that he trusts that god is still active in the world that he has not abandoned creation He is not some random dead god who cannot care he's the living god and he does care jesus response to him is where the trouble comes the disagreement the conflict in the history of the church blessed are you simon bar jonah So blessed, why is he blessed? Again, we had that word in the Old Testament reading too. He's blessed because he has the gifts of God. To bless someone is to, you might say bestow favor on them. When God blesses us, he cares for us. He gives to us of himself. Simon is blessed because God has given him the news, the knowledge, as we look to the first verse of our Romans reading. God has revealed some of that divine knowledge. He's given it to Peter. He's let Peter know who the Messiah is. This is a wonderful thing. So then Jesus... Oh, sorry, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son, so he is Simon, son of Jonah. And it has not been revealed to him by men, flesh and blood. It's been revealed by God, the Father. It's 18 here that gets to to the trouble. Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter is the Greek word for rock, so Peter's name means rock. It's like our names have meanings. My name is Stephen, which means, it's actually Greek, it means crown. Um, It's a wonderful, it's a fun thing to be able to explore what your name means and to do that with your family. And we were intentional with our kids and giving them names that they would cherish, that would point them to Jesus as they grow up, and that they would someday, maybe, hopefully, be able to use when they're talking to people to share the gospel with them. So... Jesus calls him Peter. This is why we call him Peter ourselves now. He was Simon. Now we call him Peter. can also call him Cephas, as we see in Acts. Uh, That's the Aramaic for rock. So he picks up this name rock, and he takes it with him. But the question becomes, who is the rock, or what is the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church? The Roman Catholic Church, starting... Probably a couple hundred years later. Started to teach that this idea. And they would deny that. That it was that it took a couple hundred years. But we get no indication that Peter is the Pope. In the New Testament. But they start teaching it. They believe it today. That this is Jesus proclaiming Peter Pope. that This is Jesus establishing the Bishop of Rome's office. Over the church. There's a lot of holes in that. Let's look at the text. Let's take the scripture and see what scripture says. First, Peter's name in the Greek text is Petros. That would be the masculine form of the word rock. English doesn't really do that with masculine, feminine, and neuter nouns so much. Greek certainly does. The word rock in the next clause of the sentence isn't masculine. It's feminine is actually normal for the word rock in Greek. On this rock, I will build my church. Jesus doesn't say on this Peter. It's not on this Petros. He goes back to the just regular word rock. So he calls Peter rock, and then he says, I'm going to build my church on the rock, this rock. What is this rock? That's the conversations about. And so because of the change in Masculine to feminine, the change in case. We would say then that shows us that this is not a reference to Peter, it's a reference to something else. So, what would it be in the context? It would be a reference to what Peter just confessed. It is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. That is the rock on which God will build his church. God will build his church. On the blood of Jesus on the death of Jesus on the resurrection of Jesus on the forgiveness of sins and the gates of hell cannot shall not prevail against it so the gates of hell the devil in all of his ways and all of his minions cannot overcome God's church or if you want to use the Romans language from our study there cannot defeat the body of of Christ good stuff there I've always wondered and I've, I'm still waiting for an answer to this so if you're listening and you have an answer let me know I'd love to hear the answer for the Roman Catholic Church who believes that this is the verse that sets up Peter as their Pope the very next thing that Jesus says to Peter after this is get behind me Satan so I'm curious how those two things fit together that jesus can announce peter as pope and then in his very next words renounce him as being demonic and not having his eyes on the things of god but on the things of men is sin in curvatus in se from our romans conversation verse 19 gives us another good conversation jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to his disciples. From this, we have what we call the office of holy ministry in the church today, the office of pastors. And what is the office about? Binding and loosing, forgiving or retaining sins. That's why I'm here. It's why I do what I do, is to pronounce God's forgiveness to you, to make the body and blood of Christ, which gives you forgiveness, to make that available to you, That's the primary purpose of my task. As we think again to Romans, my calling, my vocation, my assignment. The grace given to me is that I would share that same grace with you. Now this, this always reminds me of Uncle Ben's line in Spider-Man. Sorry, lame, I know. I'm a nerd. I don't, I don't mind admitting it. Anyway, Uncle Ben's famous for that, that saying, with great power comes great responsibility. This is true of the pastor as well, with the binding and the loosing of sins. I do not take that position lightly. Because if you're confessing your sin, looking for forgiveness, and I don't forgive you, I am speaking harsh words of condemnation upon you, and that does not benefit you. That greatly harms you, and now I have just sinned, and God will hold me accountable for that sin. So a pastor, any pastor who's any kind of faithful at all, even a little faithful, takes this seriously. And does not retain sin unless absolutely necessary. So the instance where somebody just refuses to repent. That's the the primary example of when sins would be bound on earth by a pastor. We call that the discipline of the church. and Talk about excommunication. So that's what this is getting into. Um, And then we have at the end, verse 20, Jesus instructions that they don't tell anyone. That he is the Christ and so oftentimes that confuses people why would Jesus not want them to tell most likely again the exact reason isn't given by Scripture so this is educated guess this is studying the words and the ministry of Jesus and it seems likely that the reason is so that he can keep his focus on his mission he has told people before not to share the miracles don't go about telling about how I just fed you, how Jesus just fed them, how Jesus just healed them, because he's not a bread king. He hasn't come to do those things. Yes, he's doing them because he has compassion on people, but it's not why he's here. He's here to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that it has come near. He is here to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And if the word gets around too much of his miracles, for example, it's going to make it hard for him to go and preach to other. Communities if the word gets out that he's the Christ Whom all the Jewish people were looking for the Christ who would deliver them from the oppressors of Rome It's gonna be hard for him to do what he's come to do So that's kind of the the best explanation I've ever heard for this secrecy that Jesus makes the disciples have in various places throughout the Gospels Alright, we are over our time again, but that is our theme for the week, our our lessons for the week, and so I hope that you were benefited by it and God's blessings to you as you continue to serve in your vocations.